Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. We can talk more about the defense case that was put up, but their first witness was this expert that William's talking about. And by the time you know William got done crossing him, I mean, his credibility was just, I think, was, was if not zero, close to zero. And you cross the expert on the facts and his bias. And in this case, William, during his cross of the, the expert for SCNG, you know, he said, well, let's talk about the facts that you're discounting or, or explaining away. And, and, you know, we sort of alluded to some of them. I mean, the guy yells out before he falls down. Okay. You know, Please must- rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials pa- Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Our, our listeners can't see, unfortunately, but I'm wearing my... Um, my most business-like fleece for this. Oh yeah, it definitely looks like a uh, like a business uh, business fleece. <laughs> yeah, know? I can see the painted on, painted on uh, what tux top or, or yeah yeah or exactly. I don't even know what it would look like. Mm-hmm. So uh, so Yvonne, I'm really excited about today's podcast because uh, not only do we have a great trial to talk about with two great trialers, but I understand that uh, one of our guests used to supervise you. That fair to say? Yeah, he's he's a cool boss. <laughs> cool boss. It, it, Just one summer, I'm sure he was glad to get rid of me, but he was right, a cool right. boss for that one summer. Exactly. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and, and uh, introduce our our guest today. We are uh, on with uh, William Applegate and Liam Duffy from the uh, law firm of Yarborough Applegate in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, William and Liam, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good. Thanks, Steve. Doing, doing well. Glad to be here. And so, William, I understand that when uh, you were at Motley Rice, which is a fantastic law firm up in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and really, uh, I mean, has done cases all over the nation, um, you uh, supervised Yvonne. So uh, let's get into the dirt on that. I mean, what happened? <laughs> you, know, you know, she was probably one of the most remarkable summer clerks we, we ever had. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I knew she had a great future and predicted great things back then. And I kind of gave myself a little credit for you know, bringing her into the fold right, yeah. and <laughs> entering her along the way. So you're welcome. Yvonne. Thank you. Right. Well, so thank you. Yeah. Worked so well for you. <laughs> thank you that you uh, trained her so well, and uh, so that we could bring her into our firm. And uh, and I, I don't feel like there was any uh, backdoor deal there between Yvonne and uh, and William to get him to say that, right? No. <laughs> oh, that was very. Did not. Did that not sound very genuine? Oh, it sounded very genuine. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me tell our listeners exactly who we're talking to. So, as I said, we're talking to William Applegate and Liam Duffy. Uh, they are uh, lawyers with the law firm of. Yarborough Applegate in Charleston, South Carolina. You can look them up at YarboroughApplegate.com. I'm going to spell it Y-A-R-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, Applegate, A-P-P-L-E-G-A-T-E.com in Charleston, South Carolina. And as I said, uh, they are fantastic uh, trial lawyers. Uh, William is a partner at Yarborough Applegate and started this uh, law firm after he worked with the very prestigious law firm of Motley Rice, which... uh, uh, any of our trial lawyer uh, listeners would know have handled some of the biggest cases in the United States, including the tobacco, the sort of the original tobacco litigation and uh, featured in movies and stuff like that. So they a fantastic law firm uh, and where Yvonne got her first taste of the legal field um, when she before she was a lawyer. Um, 
and uh, and William is a graduate from the University of South Carolina Law School. He clerked with Judge James Barber after law school, went on to work in the securities and consumer fraud section of Motley Rice, where he handled uh, a number of, uh, of, of cases. Uh, and then he's also uh, on the Legislative Steering Committee for the South Carolina Association of Justice. Uh, he specializes in catastrophic injury cases, uh, in, I think environmental cases, FELA cases, uh, oil pollution act cases, and it, I think I even saw you might do some criminal law, crim, criminal defense law as well. Is that right, William? Um, you know, I'm realizing that the uh, that maybe this resume is not super updated, but <laughs> right, I'll bring it. <laughs> but but I have been involved and in, in handled a couple of cases and even had a criminal trial here and there. So uh, back in the day, um, most of it was pro bono, but uh, did enjoy doing that when I had Right. To- Absolutely. Well, and I should also mention that you are fluent in Spanish. So uh, that's, that's also a, a great asset. Uh, and then Liam Duffy is an associate with Yarborough Applegate. Liam's a graduate from the Charleston School of Law, and he won several Cali Awards, which is the award you get for having the highest grade in the class. Uh, he was a champion in his on the moot court uh, mock trial competition. He clerked for a district court judge, Weston Houck, and is heavily involved uh, in the South Carolina Young Lawyers. Uh, is the chair for the uh, American Bar Association's Long- Young Lawyer Law Practice Management sec- section, uh, and is a South Carolina Bar uh, delegate, uh, and then also is heavily involved in Special Olympics and Make-A-Wish. So, uh, William and Liam, like I said, we're, we're very happy to have you guys on. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. Sounds like you both have a lot of free time that you can spend <laughs> talking to us on this podcast. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, and I have to say, I've been admiring the artwork behind you guys. Uh, I, I, w- yeah, I, I wish we could uh, somehow show this on the podcast, but it's a very sort of uh, uh, psychedelic type thing. But it, uh, what, what, what is that behind you? I think that's another notch on William's resume is he does all the uh, interior design. And <laughs> nice. We, you know, around the office. So. Curator, office curator. Yeah, that's right, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, because he obviously doesn't have enough to do, as Yvonne said. <laughs> right. Well, don't don't give Raz any ideas because he could grab some video, and I'm right. wearing this business fleece. Yeah, the, and I the, I don't want for, that your formal fleece. I don't want that out on the world wide web. <laughs> right. Um, this this abstract is actually not to bore the listener, but it's it's uh, black and white. If you were to look closely, is actually inside uh, of a black and white of fire. So oh, cool. We always stick our deponents right here in this seat. You know, <laughs> yeah. In the hot seat. In the hot seat, in the fire. <laughs> I, like I like it. That. No, it's very cool. It's very cool. I like that a lot. Well, um, let's talk about this case that you guys tried in uh, Colleton County, South Carolina, uh, in September of last year, September of 2019. Um, the name of the case is, uh, well, your client was Jose Larios. Uh, and it was against Dominion Energy South Carolina, formerly known as South Carolina Electric and Gas. There were several other defendants uh, in the case, including the property owner and the property manager. Uh, but from what I understand, those uh, uh, defendants settled out before the verdict came in. Uh, and so the verdict that uh, resulted in this case for the uh, uh, just terrible death of, of Mr. Larios uh, was against uh, South Carolina Energy and Gas. Uh, it was a uh, $10 million survival uh, uh, verdict, which in Georgia we would call conscious pain and suffering. Uh, and then 
uh, an $11 million uh, wrongful death award for a total award of $21 million. And uh, 10% of the fault was attributed to Mr. Larios, and then 90% of the fault was attributed to uh, South Carolina Electric and Gas. And essentially what happened in this case is Mr. Larios was a landscaper on Edisto Island, South Carolina. Uh, he was uh, going out to trim some palm trees in a very uh, wooded area, very uh, almost, I, you sent us some photos and, and they're very helpful. It's almost sort of like a jungle-like atmosphere. He goes up on a 25-foot ladder and um, when he's uh, using a chainsaw in order to trim the tree, uh, somehow, uh, and I, I think what I understood was is that he gets uh, maybe part of the tree touches the, the top wire of an electrical line, which energizes, uh, it then shocks uh, Mr. Larios, uh, causing him to fall 25 feet uh, where he was initially conscious and initially even said he was okay when his uh, friend checked on him to see how he was doing, uh, but unfortunately passed away within a, a couple of hours after that. Um, and that's the very basics of the case. And, and uh, from what it sounded like to me, uh, William and Liam, is that the, a big part of this came down to um, to two issues. One is, you know, that Mr. Larios should have seen the electrical lines and shouldn't have been near them. And then um, they, I, it sounded like there was a big causation argument about whether or not he was shocked at all. Uh, and then and you all obviously put on a lot of evidence of uh, evidence of shock and burns that he suffered on his body on the on the vegetation and on the uh, equipment that he was using. Um, and like I said, it was, it resulted in a uh, $21 million verdict and um, it was in uh, Colleton County, South Carolina. First, just uh, tell us that, tell us what the uh, uh, juries are like in Colleton County, South Carolina. It, it uh, we're not too far from you down here in Savannah. Um, but uh, from what I know, it's not the most, um, it wouldn't be the place I'd expect to hear of a $21 million verdict. Let's just say that. Well, um, you know, I, I have never tried a case in Calderon County. So it was my first uh, time down there trying a case um, in preparing for this case. Um, we spent a lot of time thinking about exactly the question you're asking, talking with all of the local lawyers who had tried cases, trying to get a feel for, what kind of jury we might get. And, and truthfully, while there have been some verdicts out of Colleton County, there are few and far between. And we felt uh, and understood that it was a, a very conservative population. And many of the people giving us guidance are many great, both uh, plaintiffs and defense lawyers around the state definitely were were instructing me that I needed to be very careful with the fact that I had a, uh, you know, undocumented Mexican immigrant um, down in Calden County <clears throat> and that, you know, we, we could see a struggle on the jury. And so we thought long and hard about that and went in focused on a strategy to get a good jury and to frame our case in a way that that would appeal to, to everyone and, and hopefully have them disregard any, any thoughts about, uh, you know, kind of hope, hope they'd be colorblind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. Um, when you have a, an undocumented immigrant, I mean, it's, it's, it, 
it, it causes a lot of uh, thought about how you're going to present the case to the jury, because on the one hand, there's a at least in Georgia, I can say there's a way you can keep that out of evidence, make it irrelevant. But at the same time, uh, it might be on the minds of the jury anyways. Um, I mean, I, I noticed that in, when you were telling the story of Mr. Larios, uh, you, you talked about the fact that he had moved to America 12 years before, how he had spent uh, time uh, picking uh, oranges in the orange grove and then sort of came, made his way up to uh, Edisto Island. This happened on Edisto Island. Um, and was working with his brother. Um, but I didn't, I didn't ever see, at least in the opening, I didn't see where it was mentioned, you know, what his uh, immigration status was. So I guess I'm wondering, did, was that ruled out of evidence that it was irrelevant what his immigration status was? And then um, did you all just embrace the fact that he had come here from, from Mexico? Or how, how did you all choose to, uh, to approach that? That's a good question. You know, Having done this a few times uh, in other places um, and handling it in other cases, um, we started focusing this issue years ago. And the very first focus group we did on it, we tried it, we focused it two ways. The first time we didn't tell them, uh, the jury, about what the status was and started, sort of kept that information from them. And during deliberations, it became a topic of conversation, and and then we let out the information to the focus group that in fact he was uh, illegal, and they went berserk, and it and it was a they fought back against it, were very upset, it became a very toxic issue, which is very bad for us. And then we did it again, where we made we put the issue on the forefront. And just let it be there, and, and made made it a non-issue in the case, um, and got and got a good result. And and we just have felt strongly. And first time we tried this case in a in a big context, uh, we went with that strategy, and that seemed and that worked in that case. And so we, I've been committed to that idea ever since. Which is you got to be open and honest with the jury. If you leave any secrets, um, the, the beautiful thing in this area for for those of us who do this and if you get one in the future is that the law is great and if you're here working and and you're hurt by the negligence of someone else um even if you are undocumented you're entitled to a recovery right so you know your fight is really making sure you get the right charges from the judge and if you can make sure you get those charges i we have never had a judge fight us on actually giving us good charges at the end of the day and i think the reality is that honesty is so important to the jury that, you know, and here we also told that story. Now you pointed out that maybe there was a little bit of vagary to it. I don't know that we use the term illegal or undocumented. I feel like that came out in trial and I attempted to make it somewhat obvious in the opening by saying, you know, my client cost, you know, across the desert, or, you know, you know, came in here through through the night, you know, right. to try to find a better life for himself yeah. in an attempt not to hide it uh, from the jury. So, you know, we felt like it was clear to them. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? 
I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, yeah, one thing we, um, in the materials you sent us, uh, I didn't I didn't see the uh, uh, voir dire, but I was just wondering, did, did y'all... Uh, ask the you know, Venire panel whether or not that was something they consider if he if they, he was undocumented or just hit that head on during jury selection. You know, in South Carolina, Steve, we we get a very limited voir dire. Um, okay. So usually, you know, we might submit twenty five, thirty questions in each side, and then there's usually a paring down process, and then you know maybe the judge will ask some of the ones he likes to ask, and then he'll hopefully ask as many as he will of your questions. We had sort of a, a little bit of a back and forth about this issue um, because of the sort of extensive research I've done. I know that you must put it out there and I want to make right. sure that any juror who either wants an excuse to get out of jury duty or, or whatever will latch on to it. If I've asked enough questions, do you have any problems with an undocumented immigrant in any way, shape or form? If you do get out of here. So right. you know, we put a lot of questions in the voir dire. The judge, was reluctant to ask those um, and, you know, it indicated that, you know, he was going to instruct on the law properly later and that even, even he might've had his own personal issues with the immigration uh, status of my client. Um, but that the important thing was to ask if everyone could be fair and impartial and then to charge the law that he's entitled to a recovery. So you know, that's where we went you know, um, and, and that's what we trusted, but that, that it is important. And I would recommend is to anyone out there to get as much voir as you can on it. Right. And for those lucky States where you can dig into it. Um, you know, when I've done it out of state where they had voir I asked extensive amount of questions and was able to eliminate people who, who had biases and find people who, uh, who also had, uh, a different experience who are related to an immigrant of some sort and can relate right. to that experience and, and be good jurors for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think it's something you just got to hit head on uh, and there's no use <clears throat> holding back on it because uh, I think the jury's going to talk about it either way. So you might as well just get it right out there in the open. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, how they defended this case because I, I think on the one hand, I mean, it, it it was kind of an interesting defense to me because it seemed like it would be hard to make both the, the two arguments or they made several arguments, but it seemed like it'd be hard to argue, well, you should see these uh, power lines anyways. Uh, and so it's really his own fault for getting too close to him. But, oh, by the way, he never touched him anyways. So it, it kind of like, it's almost like you need to pick one or the other and just go with it. But they sort of 
tried to pick both and just, I guess, throw as much uh, mud up on the wall as they could. Uh, how, how did y'all uh, address those issues? Well, I was, I was just going to say, Steve, you know, you make a good point. It's sort of William and I in preparing for the trial, we talked about, you know, the old uh, defense in, in the classic dog bite case where it's, you know, uh, uh, first, the, uh, you, the dog didn't bite you. And, right. uh, oh, but if the dog did bite you, he didn't have any teeth. Uh, right. But, if, right. but if he did have teeth, you're really not that hurt. So it was sort of, uh, you know, one of those scenarios, which is what you're talking about, which is if, uh, you know, we had a lot of good, I think, uh, factual uh, fact, fact witness testimony on the visibility of these power lines. And so that was sort of our primary focus is, uh, you know, the defense as to, oh, he should have seen them, uh, you know, we felt was pretty well rebutted by independent investigative witnesses that we presented early in the trial uh, so that when they got the opportunity to try to make that argument, we could, you know, direct the jury both in closing and sort of throughout the trial back to that testimony that, for example, the coroner that investigated the scene for several days hadn't made any mention of or noted anything about power lines. And, and uh, you know, we also had the, the testimony. I don't know that it was in the um, transcript we sent you because it was a video that was played at trial. But the, the gentleman who owned the home, uh, an older gentleman that had owned it for, you know, 35 years. Oh, wow. In deposition, he stated, I never even knew there were power lines back there. Never saw them, didn't know they were there. So uh, that's sort of how we addressed that defense. Um, again, was, you know, not only the defendant's witnesses, but also the neutral, independent you know, third-party witnesses that were, were literally there for the purpose of investigating what happened. And only after they discovered uh, more information did they go back to the scene and determine, you know, sort of this aha moment that, oh, wow, these, these power lines are here. Um, and, and then, of course, they also, you know, as you mentioned, they had the defense that, well, uh, e even, even if you couldn't see them, um, it, well, I guess, they, you know, what I was surprised by was that the, they didn't um, – focus so much on that defense or, or that they led with the uh, it never happened defense. I mean, that was a surprise to me up until about a month or two before trial. Right. We'll talk more about that. But. Well, I, I think to, to, to the other side of that, Steve, which, you know, to give the full context for it is the, the situation itself was a little bit of a perfect storm. And that is that, uh, and unique, obviously, I've never seen a case like this, and like many of the cases we all do. Um, but, you know, we have a gentleman who's an expert and been climbing trees and cutting tree, tree limbs, you know, for years and kind of, you know, known throughout the community for how good he was at doing this job. Um, but he was doing this every day. And, you know, obviously, he didn't expect this to happen, but he's in a tree and he, you know, the, the theory and, and what we learned through the independent witnesses and then ultimately our uh, engineering experts who came and corroborated it all was what what the evidence showed is that he literally must have, you know, touched uh, with his chainsaw a branch, which the, the pressure of him cutting on that chainsaw then propelled the eight feet away from him, the branch into a hot power line which therefore then conducted the energy through him, through the right. chainsaw, and shocked him and threw him to the ground. And there was sort of a, a overwhelming evidence of that. But at the same time, as you can imagine, with those kind of facts, and I don't think anybody, anybody of us would have heard facts like that 
and not expected there to be a significant liability defense right. put on. Right. Um, I think what we lucked out in, in, in fact, was that there was, as Liam suggested, so much independent investigation that was done. Um, and the, in, those independent witnesses believed our theory. I mean, it was consistent with what they thought had happened and what they had figured out over the course of time. And so when that story unraveled, it was very much like a TV show where you really are going to the independent witnesses. They're telling you they were there on the scene. Hey, I went, I saw this. Oh, then the next day we found this. Oh, then the next day we found this. And so it was, it probably was not the best strategy um, to come in and combat that in the, in the way they did. Um, you know, and I think if anything, uh, but, I, but I won't take away from the fact that I'm sure they had jurors questioning what happened. Right, right. And, and, and we didn't have, this was not an electrocution case, and that was an important distinction through this thing. He was shocked. Right. And the shock is what sent him 25 foot from the feet from the tree. And, and then ultimately, you know, he suffered so many internal injuries that he, that he died. But um, that brings in the issues of comparative fault. Should he have been harnessed in a different way? Should he have been provided more safety measures? How much of the uh, fault was really the employer uh, as opposed to the, to the you know, power company? You know, and again, from our perspective, this is sort of your small landscape company. Our focus was on what what we knew were the the regulations related to these power companies, and you know we had exhibits that you may have been sent, but where Dominion Energy or as we call them South Carolina Electric and Gas here had been out on Edisto Island and put out pamphlets of information talking about their own duties and requirements. Right. Make sure that these power lines are kept free and clear from any and all vegetation growth. And so this is in a right-of-way that's utilized by the public in an area that's actually kind of part of a jungle sort of behind a certain group of houses. And clearly uh, from the people who had been out there, no one had been inspecting this area or, or doing any kind of trimming that would have been required. And so to us, it was the most tangible strategy for us to focus on that. And, and, and maybe just, you know, their, their response was not effective. I did want to ask you about, I, I, I read some of the briefing that y'all did on this, and it, it comes up a lot where you have um, an OSHA investigation. You have a, um, somebody who's hurt on the job, and so OSHA comes to investigate, and they do findings, and, and they're focused on the employer and, and workplace safety. So, number one, their investigation is kind of focused on this one issue versus, you know, the case itself, which is, is has a much um, sort of broader inquiry. Um, but I know that in this case, that was especially an issue because of this idea of blaming the employer for what happened. So can y'all talk a little bit about the OSHA involvement, how, how you tried to handle that, how that ended up playing out, um, especially as it relates to this defense of, of, of blaming things on the employer? Yeah, I mean, Yvonne, that was one of the concerns that uh, we wanted to be sure we addressed with the jury, especially after we focus group the case was... Uh, what's going to be the impact of this empty chair defense on the uh, the employer, the landscaping company, who uh, by the time the trial came around was not a, uh, a named defendant in the case. So we knew they weren't going to be uh, on the verdict form uh, for apportionment purposes. But nevertheless, we knew that that SCG was going to defend 
uh, you know, by pointing the finger at, at the employer saying, you know, they failed to properly train or, or uh, provide, you know, personal protective equipment. And so, you know, as you mentioned, OSHA is really a limited jurisdiction entity. And so that was our first, uh, you know, that was our argument, at least, that we made at the outset of trial was uh, we filed a motion to eliminate to say, look, Your Honor, not, the employer's not in the case. The employer has no ability to uh, make any determination as to the ultimate cause of this um, shock and this fall and this death. The employer, I mean, the uh, OSHA is limited solely to did the employer do something um, that could have prevented this. And, and ultimately, I think um, if you see in Williams' opening, you know, he does a good job sort of diffusing that issue at the outset because we lost the motion in limine. Right. The judge said the OSHA citations against the employer are coming into evidence. Um, and, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we did have concern about that. But if you look at what the citations were actually for, you know, failure to provide personal protective equipment like, you know, eye protective wear or a helmet right. or, uh, you know, leg chaps to prevent <clears throat> the uh, possibility of being cut by a chainsaw, those types of things. At the end of the day, those don't really have any bearing on uh, what ultimately caused this death. And so I think, you know, that was an important thing to try to inoculate at the front end because we knew that they were going to try to hammer uh, the OSHA element, you know, the empty chair and, uh, you know, I think we just told the jury, look, you're going to hear all about this employer. You're going to hear about OSHA. At the end of the day, that's not a question that's going to be answered on the verdict form. And so that's all a distraction. Yeah. <clears throat> if I may, to, not to bore you guys, but I, <laughs> it, it occurs to me that um, for all the lawyers out there that, that take these issues home with them every day, I was struggling with this OSHA issue and I went home and was trying to figure out, um, again, how to defuse it. And I sat down with my 13-year-old son, and I told him about the facts of this case. And I said, you know, the defense suggests that this is really the landscaping company's fault because they should have known where the power lines were. Mm -hmm. And and so I've got I've to work with it. So we went through the facts of the case, and he pondered on it for a second. He said, well, Dad... I think the thing you need to focus on the fact is that the power company, they put those power lines there. Right. They have maps of where those power lines exist. They're definitely the people with the most knowledge and information about those power lines and clearly have the best ability to keep, keep them clean. And I thought, wow, this is great. This clarifies issue, but you know, <laughs> I've kind of brought the family into it. And, uh, and now I've got another consultant at home. <laughs> uh, just uh, I was uh, remind me after this uh, show to give me your thirteen-year-old's uh, phone number so I can give him a job when he uh, when he's ready to finish law school. Now you see where all the, the brains come. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, if anything, I think we learned that William's great at spotting talent because I, right, I don't know if you want right. to go back to, to <laughs> think about right. me. Yeah, let's. Can we revisit that issue? Yeah. Um, so uh, let me ask you this. Wait, uh, wait, Steve. Oh, wait, Steve. Ahead. I have a question about that. Yeah. Um, were they in terms of the you know? I, it might've been the first complaint or an earlier complaint that we looked at with, um, I think at one point the property owner was in the case and the employer was in the case. I'm just curious, um, cause sometimes we deal with this issue in Georgia where they will either try to bring up the fact that other entities were previously sued or previously in the case, um, or that you had allegations against them in the complaint. And I'm just wondering if they tried that and if so, how y'all handled it. As to the, 
OSHA defendant, I mean, they that was their defense, you know, the classic empty chair. They focused on that issue and said, look, ladies and gentlemen, here are the citations. Clearly, the fault lies in the employer. Right. Uh, as to the other real estate defendants um, that we really kind of had for failing to, to notify our clients, I mean, our, our client of the problem before sending him back there, um, they came in and fought the case for the first three days, and then they they decided to, to get out of the case. Got it. Day, day three, um, and that cleaned up the issues for us, too. So it was great. Got so it. let me just ask you an apportionment question, because in Georgia, you can apportion to a non-party. So you could, even though they're not a defendant, you could still put the employer on the verdict form, which is a, a huge pain. Uh, but I guess what I'm wondering is, is if at the end of the day, when they've got this verdict form and the verdict form is essentially apportioning between your client, Mr. Larios, and, and between um, South Carolina Energy and Gas, I mean, how exactly is the jury supposed to use the fact that they are blaming this employer who, when they're given the verdict form, isn't on there at all? I mean, because it, 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 it doesn't really give them that choice to say, oh, yeah, I think it's this other party's. I guess is the idea that they're just going to find less fault on uh, South Carolina Energy and Gas? Well, they, you know, the, the issue is is somewhat complicated. Um, but, yeah, here in South Carolina, they, they're not on the verdict form. Um, and the, the court goes through great pains to explain, you know, nevertheless, um, you, know, you can consider the fact that there may be this other person at fault when you're, when you're doing your analysis. But, but importantly, as you stated, uh, because they're not a party, um, and in, particularly in a case where it's the employer, you know, they look at it as it's a worker's compensation issue. So they're not a proper party in this case, and that's for another day. Right. So no, it it it, it is good um, in that regard, but while it didn't happen in this case, I think the result that you know about it sounds like we're familiar with, and you, we see happen all over over the place. Is even despite this, you can have a situation where they come back and ultimately just don't find liability against right. the defendant because of overwhelming evidence that it was employer fault. Right, right. So I, I wanted to go back and ask you, when I read the materials in, in these cases, I usually try to think of what are all the problems in the case, because that's, you know, way I look at cases, you know, what, what are the problems? How am I going to overcome those problems? And, and my first thought on this is, is that, when, you know, he, he fell, uh, he's 25 feet up in the air. So I, one of the first notes I wrote down was, you know, why wasn't he wearing a safety harness or something to tether him in? And, um, and then when I was reading your opening, and so I wrote that down as a potential defense, you know, lack of a safety harness. Um, when I was reading your opening, it, you described that he had a rope that he would use to tie himself in. And then it looks like, and I want to make sure I was reading this right. Um, once his friend, uh, I think it was Mr. Abraham, heard him scream he looks up and he said it, it it looked like his body lost strength and then that he unbuckled his rope so i guess what i'm wondering did 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 mr abraham actually see him take the rope off or what 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 happened there uh yeah you know that was definitely a point of contention because again we had uh we did have one witness so there to testify about what he saw and it was pretty much relying on him but it was also consistent with the evidence on the ground um, and what he had said to the various investigators at the time. But yeah, it was just that 
he heard the scream. He looked up. It's, you know, the description probably to me sounded like the guy was shocked or stunned. Yeah. And, um, but in that he was able to reach down to his waist, unstrap this, uh, rope, which was tied, you know, firmly to the tree as if he was, his next step would have been to try to proceed down the, you know, to, to right. get out of the situation. Uh, but obviously he lost all control at that point and just fell. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense that, you know, if he, cause it sounds like this, you know, he gets shocked and then it, it sounds like when he fell, he actually thought he was okay. So maybe he, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to, you know, crawl down as quickly as I can and just get away from the situation, but didn't realize that I guess his muscles basically weren't working. And so he just ends up falling. I think that's true. And I think that's that distinction about the shock versus electrocution. Um, you know, the, the shock he sustained, I don't think, you know, was sufficient to have killed him. So he hits the ground at this point. Now it's just massive internal injuries. I think we all probably know enough about that to know that he's probably now in a different type of shock. Right. And, but his head is, is clear and he is talking and he's thinking, okay, I'm obviously hurt, but uh, I'm breathing at the time. And so he thinks, he's okay for a short period of time. And, um, you know, he's a big, you can imagine guy doing this work. He's a, a very big, strong fella who did manual labor 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. Um, I, I want to go back to this, uh, the point that we were talking about before of the way they defended this case in saying um, that he, you know, one, he didn't touch it in the first place and two, he should have seen it because I, I, I you all have talked about this a little bit, but I, I really want to, um, the demonstratives that you sent us from your closing, I thought were very powerful mm-hmm. because you, um, you know, basically you had overwhelming evidence from every independent witness that went out there that said nobody saw these, including the coroner, including like a firefighter, including you know, the person from OSHA who goes out there, looks, had no idea that there were even power lines out there. Um, you know, and then, and then of course you had the expert from the defense come up and say, well, you should have seen him. And then you had some of the defendants say you should have seen him. But I thought it was a really effective uh, uh, demonstrative to show you know, I mean, you know, some of these people have no dog in this fight and none of them saw. And and then I should say also that you sent us some of the photos. I mean, looking at these photos, I don't know how you'd see anything up there. Um, and you certainly don't see a power line in these photos that are taken right of the area where he got shocked. Um, so I, I, I just I guess I really wanted you to all talk about how you put together your demonstratives and how important those were. And then, and then the same thing with the burn evidence, because, you know, one of their... Um, points was is that he wasn't burned at all but then you of course you know had evidence of or, or he wasn't shocked at all you had evidence of a burn on the chainsaw a burn on the palm fronds a burn on the on his uh, abdomen uh you know and i think you had several other pieces of evidence that um uh, of burning including the fact that um mr abraham i think when he looked up saw uh smoke um so just talk about how you, you know you used the that evidence because I guess the other thing I was thinking is what we always talk about is that in my mind, credibility is the number one issue in trials. And when you, when you defend in a way that you're really putting your credibility out there, um, you you know, you're taking a big risk, I guess, from, from a defense standpoint. And when you've got independent witnesses that say, no, we, none of us saw it. 
um, it seems like it's it. You, sometimes you hate it when defense do, does that, but at the same time, it's it's a uh, you're happy or appreciative that they do it because it makes them look so bad. Yeah, I mean, throughout the trial, when it came to the evidence of the of the fire, we had you know developed throughout the you know our witnesses and their witnesses, you know, again our position, and then you know obviously their defense or response. For example, the the bark burn on the chainsaw. That was evidence that okay, there'd been there'd been a, a shock event um, that took place. Well, you know, ultimately, in my opinion, the defense was not credible. The defense there was that we didn't have any engineering expert who could prove with certainty that that uh, was in fact an arc burn. Well, we had testimony from the witness who greased and put the chain on the chainsaw that the arc burn wasn't there that, you know, when he handed him the chainsaw and he found it on there after, you know, in the exact location where he was cutting. Right. Um, you know, right after the fall. So, you know, I think that goes to what you, you pointed out. And so we went through that and that was the, the big focus of our case was trying to debunk each attack they had on our piece of evidence. And as you know, the world's not perfect with evidence. So we had to, try to grab at every single piece of evidence we had, every statement, every object, and, and look at those and piece them together, put together, um, you know, the full picture. And that's, you know, Liam, you talk about the demonstratives. Um, you know, I get up there most of the time and, and just stand up and talk. And we got there before closings and Liam had gone through and created this incredible PowerPoint showing every fallacy in every argument. And so as I walked through the testimony for the, uh, of the different witnesses, Liam had, I think what you're reflecting on is just an amazing, you know, visual capture of all that, I think, which was extremely effective. Um, And um, one of his proud moments was that uh, he their expert had suggested about the uh, the burn itself, I mean, about the scream that, you know, this could have been anything. In fact, you know, it ultimately their position was, look, he fell out of the tree. We get it. Right. But we don't know exactly why he fell out of the tree. And it's, there's not really more likely that it was an electrical event than it was a snake in the tree. <laughs> or, or the I'm so glad you're talking that. about this. I, I was I wondering looked... what the picture of the snake was about. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so either that there was a snake, you know, th- this comment was made by their expert that it could have been a snake or a bee. Right. So here you've got this 280 pound man who climbs in trees every day. And there's a suggestion that, like, that maybe a bee <laughs> right. <laughs> so stunned him to a level that he fell to the ground. <laughs> Anyway, that was that was made extremely apparent by this very evocative image that <laughs> that uh, Liam had put right next to the face of their expert. And you talk about little ways and how little effort you have to make with one strong point to destroy an expert. Uh, that was, uh, I think, a very effective approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he made that one fun. I mean, you know, Steve, it goes back to what you were just saying, which is, you know, and, and you guys have said on many times on this podcast before, which is credibility is king. And, uh, you know, there we could talk more about the defense case that was put up, but their first witness was this expert that William's talking about. And by the time, you know, William got done crossing him, I mean, his credibility was just, 
I think was, was if not zero, close to zero. And, you know, it, it goes back to, uh, you know, what I've always learned, which is, you, you know, and, and our friend Ronnie Crosby oh, yeah. talked about this recently at a presentation. I mean, you cross the expert on the facts and his bias. And in this case, William, during his cross of the, the expert for SCNG, you know, said, well, let's talk about the facts that you're discounting or, or explaining away. And, and, you know, we sort of alluded to some of them. I mean, the guy yells out before he falls down. Okay. You know, there must've been some reason for that. There's smoke that's witnessed by the only eyewitness. There's a burn mark on the chainsaw. There's a burn mark on his body. There's burnt palm fronds in the area. So he had, you know, some explanations, which I think all of which were pretty weak for those. Um, you know, another one that was my favorite was uh, when asked about the mark on the chainsaw, as William said, he said, well, you know, it could have been anything. I think the expert testified that he, he Googled some old used chainsaws on Craigslist and, and Google and, and they had all kinds of marks. And so he didn't know what it was. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just goes back to your point that, uh, you know, as plaintiff's lawyers, I mean, credibility is, is our singular focus throughout. And, uh, you know, anytime you can draw that contrast with the defense, I mean, I think you're, uh, you're, you're doing your job. Yeah. And I, I, I just want to point out because it, it I mean, I, I, like I said, I really like the demonstratives from the PowerPoint that you did, Liam. The one that I, I think really stuck out to me, and it's one that it reminds me of something that we might do at trial, um, is where you've got the, um, the evidence of electrical shock and you've got these six witnesses on one side who all say that there's electrical shock, including the pathologist from uh, the Medical University of South Carolina, the chief deputy coroner, um, you know, and then you've got this picture of the expert on the other side and it's obviously not his best picture. Uh, that says it never happened, and uh, uh, that's just well, one of my favorites. Steve, uh, you, you, you can't leave might, out you yeah. can't leave out how he's described right under his picture. Right, yeah. paid paid opinion witness. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, and like I said, I mean, we we crossed him on the on the facts and certainly on the uh, bias as well, and I think that came out. I mean, this this guy is uh, you know he makes a living testifying on behalf of utility companies, and um, you know, so that that much was very clear to the jury, uh, and, and they told us as much. So. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Well, so speaking of, you, you kind of alluded to this, but, but I am interested in hearing more about what, 
you know, how the defense put up their case, especially if they decided to start with the paid expert that they had to know was going to take a little heat. You want to hit on that, William? Um, well, you know, again, again, you know, obviously I can't read into exactly um, what all the thoughts were. You know, I can, I can give my honest assessment is that while I think, you know, we worked really hard to put on our case and make it seem clear and, you know, sitting here listening to you guys and some of the questions, it seems that y'all are looking at our demonstratives and thinking, wow, you had this extremely <laughs> compelling case that, right. you know, it was, uh, and I'll admit that, that everything wasn't so clear in that, you know, we, we did put a lot of time and effort into this one. Um, and so, you know, we, we tried to make it look that way. Um, and, and obviously think, think it was, but again, understandably there were some complex set of facts. Um, it was unique. And I think probably at the time, uh, those guys looked at these are, are legitimate uh, questions about whether in fact, and I, and I think the big issue is, you know, they, they were arguing um, the, the sort of science of it. You know, was it possible that he could have been shot through a branch eight feet away? You know, they were arguing about, you know, whether it's reasonable for them to have to be to manage their vegetation on such a regular basis you know, I think they were they were kind of arguing the reasonable person standard, and um, so we had to, you know, and we knowing that we we had to set out a plan to really make it clear that these were that the regulations were clear that they had a duty and they didn't comply with that duty, and and it was logical what we said happened, and I think we were able to again said Liam helping putting together demonstrators in that effect. Um, you know, made it a very compelling case, something that we thought was very compelling. And, you know, as we all do, I mean, I believed it 100% what happened. Now, I couldn't come up with another rational explanation. And I think, um, you know, so to be honest, I believed it happened. And I think they had more of a question, do you think that really happened? Right, so right. that's the difference. Instead of, uh, you know, it, it wasn't clear to me that they, they took – or would even be able to take a position, this did not happen, period, end of sentence. You know, there were a lot of question marks. They were more trying to poke holes. Okay. Yeah. And, and obviously, um, if we had been in a criminal trial, maybe we wouldn't have had the same yeah. uh, luck on a, on a beyond a reason. I mean, you know. Right. Well, yeah, one of the things that stuck out to me in their opening was this this uh, theme of there's no credible evidence and I, you know, I, I mean, I understand as a lawyer what they're saying. There's no credible evidence. But I think when juries hear that, it just sounds like lawyer talk. Like, why are you saying there's no credible evidence? What does that even mean? It just say there's no evidence. Um, but uh, it just sounds like they're hedging the whole time. And so they're not really being straightforward. Um, I think it goes into, you know, how deep do we get into issues, lawyers, in all our cases? You know, I've, with my training experience, and I, I kind of adhere to the idea of, you know, the keep it simple, stupid. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that resonates with jurors. And I think that's what you need to focus on. And if your defense happens to be technical, um, you know, I don't know that those things always gel together. So that probably worked in our favor. 
Yeah. Um, well, I want to turn a little bit and talk to the damages that you all put up in this case, because, um, you know, as we've already talked about, uh, um, Mr. Larios was an undocumented immigrant. Um, you know, the, the verdict uh, was uh, uh, $10 million for pain and suffering and then $11 million for uh, the loss to his family. Um, I guess the first question uh, that I have, it, it didn't look like to me that he that he had a wife or children. Is that right? That's correct. And so um, talk about how you develop the damages in this case to get, I mean, you know, a, tr- a, a tremendous award for uh, the death when, you know, I'm sure I'm sure the defense uh, had a had a viewpoint of it that even if you all won, that the value wasn't going to be that high. Well, I mean, just to answer that question, Parsh, but real quickly, this was a pure liability defense. They, they never put on any damages defense. They didn't raise the issue of damages um, as you, you know, you may have read some of it, but you know, kind of back into your, your original question, but you know, in the closing um, I, I went through and kind of worked from, you know, things you've learned over the years and, and how to talk to juries about survival and wrongful death damages and, you know, used numbers, so specific numbers about, what things are in our society worth and how, how we view numbers. And so I talked about numbers like $20 million and $50 million and, 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 and put those into context a little bit. Um, but you know, specifically as to the survival and the wrongful death, I mean, we did, I think what most people do, which is we tried to show the serious nature through the coroner experts and, um, and through the, uh, the medical, you know, examiner, you know, exactly what happened to this guy. The fact that he fell from a tree consciously, suffered serious internal injuries, and then, you know, over the course of hours, you know, kind of had, had internal bleeding to the point that he obviously choked on and, and died. Um, so, you know, I think people viewed it as a pretty horrific uh death in, in a way that no one would want to die. So I think, you know, we tried to, to impress on any facts we had related to that. And then um, the, the wrongful death side of it, you know, we, we lucked out um, and his closest friend and only family member is his one single living sibling, which is a brother. And so, you know, I spent, I don't know, weeks uh, really with, with, the brother. Um, and I think I was able to develop a strong relationship with him of trust. And, uh, I have a brother, uh, and know the importance of that relationship. So we spent a lot of talking about, you know, the significance of that loss. And I think the time spent allowed him when he came up to the stand to, to really feel like it was a time for him to be able to speak about his brother. He did a great job articulating every aspect of that loss. And, and then we had, you know, somebody represent, you know, someone to come and talk about the loss to the parents and the impact on the parents. But we had a guy who had a pretty remarkable story. And so unlike the rest of his family who had been pretty much, you know, farmers uh, and just worked manual labor uh, for generations, he was sort of the, the sort of super kid who came up in and out being an incredible soccer player, got scholarships to high school, his his younger brother, one who testified, stopped going to school so he could work to help with 
paying for Jose to go to school. He ultimately got uh, scholarships to go to college and, and ultimately got a law degree in Mexico. So he was a lawyer and down there they have a different system of, of practice and you kind of have to buy your way into the game right. um, once you get to get your final license. Um, he was unable to do that. He had a brother in the States. And so he traveled here to start working. And that, that transferred into a deep commitment to Edisto, South Carolina. He loved it, really embraced the community, learned the language, you know, studied, but worked, you know, hard and was working towards, you know, getting money so he could kind of further his professional goals. So I think that resonated a lot with people uh, on the spectrum of, of where this guy, he was a standout. And the jurors uh, seemed to, to catch that. This was a, a remarkable individual who had a bright future. Yes, he was 40, but he had a, a long life ahead of him. He was a healthy, happy 40-year-old and, um, and was someone special who, you know, what was made clear by the family witnesses is that he uh, was one of these people who didn't, didn't want to be one of the masses. He, he stood out and, and he had great ambitions. I think that was important to, to tell the jurors. And, and I think that's what they heard. And I think that's why they gave um, the full measure of damages. Right. Um, William, can you talk a little bit more about, cause I, I noticed that in, y- in y'all's materials about how um, Jose's brother was somebody that you really had. He was kind of, um, he wasn't talking a lot about it at first and that you really had to work a lot with him and that he ended up being such a powerful witness. And I think a lot of us have had those clients or family members of clients or damages witnesses that we thought were the people that were um, maybe had the most, you know, knew the decedent the best or, or were the best person to talk to the jury about the loss, but they're, they clearly struggle verbalizing it or talking about it. Um, can you just talk a little bit more? I mean, it sounds like part of it was that you were really able to relate to him, um, but was there anything else special that you did to to turn him into a witness that um, could really do such a great job for y'all at trial? Let me just add to that because I think you also noted that he spoke through an interpreter, so that gives its own challenges. So um, add that add that to what Vaughn just asked you about how you handled not only getting him to open up, but also just handling uh, the fact that you needed an interpreter for him to talk to the jury. Well, and a great question. I mean, and for, for everyone out there, it's probably, if I can ever give a tip, that is one thing I learned is having had so many depositions with translators is I realized when you have to go to trial and do it, it's so important to go out. Um, we had paralegals at the firm. You know, I had them interviewing every uh, agency in town, trying to find the best interpreter mm. Um, we went through a few during the deposition process that were not productive, that did not help us. We finally found really weeks before trial, uh, someone who uh, was very highly qualified, who was, you know, had good uh, intonation, who could speak clearly, who could kind of, you know, connect with people who just had a better, had a good personality and was very fluid in her and accurate with her translations. And so, Obviously, um, I, we did spend a lot of time on that from the translation perspective, and that ended up working fabulously. Um, and as much credit to to the translators themselves, and I just we definitely recommend anyone dealing with it to really go and interview these people and say, "Is this who I want telling my story?" Because it ends up being part of 
of the face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll be truthful about the, the witness and, and how well as one of the stronger witnesses, the brother did. Um, and that is that I was worried up until the time he got on the stand that, that it would not work out. And, um, and, and I, and I was relying on the fact that I'd spent so much time and I had just admonished him. Okay. You, you know, we've done this many, many times and you still are not answering my questions. <laughs> Please. This is your one day to tell your story. This is our chance. This is the trial. And this is when you need to tell everyone, I know you're a tough guy and you know, all that stuff. And you're trying to put this behind you, but I need you today because this is, this is our chance. And again, I just kind of got lucky that, um, the, the experience ended up being somewhat cathartic for him mm-hmm. and gave him an opportunity. And so, you know, we were happy and obviously he resonated. He was honest and uh, with the jury and we ended up having, you know, eight of the 12 jurors uh, were in tears and some of those wow. were men and, you know, felt like it was very compelling. And that, that happened with some of the other damaged witnesses as well. And let me just add to that, Yvonne, to your question about how did he, you know, William sort of draw that out of the witness. I mean, it was really, in my view, watching the direct, it was through the use of pictures and stories. And, you know, as you guys know, I mean, a lot of times with these damages witnesses, you, you know, you ask this question, you know, what was somebody like? And you're going to get a lot of sort of generic type answers. And it's, it's through, uh, you know, stories and photographs and memories that you're able to, you know, paint a full picture of the person. And so that was, you know, the way that the courtroom was set up was that uh, the Gaspar, the brother, had the jury to his right and was obviously nervous when he first took the stand. The, the courtroom screen or projector was to his left. And so we essentially, William walked him through a series of photographs of his brother, you know, playing with animals or, or working, you know, in trees, or whatever it was, you know, with his niece, uh, who was the witness's daughter. And so that was really where the, the, the witness came alive and really the story of Jose came alive. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, there was hardly a, really a dry eye in the room by the time he was done. And, and to William's point about, you know, being cathartic, what he told the jury, and I think really was the most powerful point of the trial for me, at least, was, you know, it had been, I think, about four years since the date of the, the incident. And his brother died. And he said, you know, for my daughter and my wife and, and my family, I really have had to you know, be strong this entire time. And I truly have never grieved the loss of my brother the way that other mm-hmm. family member should. And uh, and when he said that, you know, and sort of you could see the emotion in his face. I mean, that was a, a really, really powerful moment in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, I mean, he really did just reading about him and his really interesting, um, his, his interesting background and then seeing the pictures or at least the pictures that you all included in the closing. Um, really seems like, I, I don't know, you just get a sense that he, he seems to have really been a, um, a special guy. A, a kind of a, seems like sort of a big, bright personality. Yeah. And, and I just want to get, I mean, uh, to that point, you know, about obviously having to connect with the brother to, um, to develop that. I mean, William's ability not only to sort of, you know, be fluent in Spanish and connect with this guy, but also sort of understanding very well the, the cultural differences. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he was a very guarded kind of guy, a tough guy, and didn't want to, you know, open up about 
the, the pain that he was dealing with. And I think William's ability to really connect with him on a deep level um, and make that personal relationship. I mean, which is, you know, the goal with all of our clients to understand their human story. Um, and, and I just think he did an incredible job with that. And we really wouldn't have been able to do it if we were operating the whole time with a language barrier and, uh, and right. that sort of thing. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask the, the uh, sound like you might've had a chance to talk to the jury afterwards. Was there anything that they said uh, that, uh, you know, they said worked particularly well or didn't work or anything like that, that you, you gathered from them? You know, you know, first off, I think we all know, which was great. The, the jury was a very uh, interesting jury. They, they clearly bonded throughout the, the week. And, um, and so, they were they were super happy for the family and they were very proud of themselves so that was sort of the first thing we learned yeah. from them and then, and then to the extent we asked them well was there something that, you know what were your issues or you know it's it sounded to me one of the things we heard was it um that you know we that we did a good job cross-examining their witnesses and bringing about the fallacies of the defense and and that was powerful um but, you know, I don't know what else really we learned too much from, from them. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, it sounded like they spent the majority of the time deliberating, you know, discussing damages. And, and you know, sort of interestingly, I know in Georgia, for you guys, the law of wrongful death, you know, damages are for the value of the life. Right, right. Uh, in South Carolina, we've got some case law that's, you know, sort of hair splitting in my view. It's not the value of the life, it's the value of the loss. But, but right. obviously they spent a great deal of time uh, based on our conversations, you know, uh, assessing that, appraising that loss to the family. Um, uh, and as you know, there's there's like probably six pages worth of charges read to the jury about <laughs> about what the survival slash pain and suffering damages. What does that mean? What does that entail? And and then what the wrongful death damages are, what that means, and what that entails, and exactly what you're allowed to provide damages, you know, for. And, and I guess that's always interesting to me is you, you always wonder how well they're listening and how, you know, do they understand it? And I think that's where we got an appreciation that they had just been really focused and that they spent, you know, their entire deliber- deliberation for the most part after they got past liability and, and focused on the damage issue and exactly, you know, what it meant to them. And it sounded like they had just a lot of thoughtful reasoning going forward, which yeah, I, I thought, you know, was good. It actually felt good to us. Yeah. Well, you know, and one thing that we always talk about is, uh, I don't know if it's what it's like in South Carolina, but it's really up to the discretion of the judge in Georgia, whether or not they're going to send the jury charges back with the jury or whether or not they're just going to read them to them. And and there's a lot of debate about whether or not that's a good or bad thing. If the jury charges are sent back with the jury, uh, that maybe they get hung up on something that they didn't quite understand. I, what, what do they do in South Carolina? And did that have, I mean, it, it sounds like they give a lot of instruction on how to, how to determine damages. You know, I'd say, Steve, I, I don't want to say blanket. I've never seen them do it. And I, most everyone I've said has a preference not to do it. Right. Um, you know, I think maybe I've heard of a judge or two that may do it on a particular issue. Um, I think it's up to their discretion. I think they could do it. I don't think there's a, a rule on that. Right. So yeah, typically they're just red. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to turn, uh, you know, we talked before the podcast, um, you know, and I wanted to get into it a little bit. Um, so I understand that there was a motion for new trial uh, granted by the judge. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the what happened there and what what the status of the case is now? Sure. And sure. I mean, I'm sure for the listeners, it's great a turn and event. We start off and we talk about a <laughs> right. $21 million verdict, um, which is always fun. And, um, and then we have a motion for a new trial. Ultimately the, you know, that standard here in South Carolina is, is, you know, that it's a one or the other, you can either have a remitter, uh, which is just really, if it, if the, if, if it's just merely excessive, and the court can reduce that verdict. Um, in the alternative, they can find that it shocks the conscience and is a result of passion, pride, uh, and prejudice. Um, and uh, so, you know, bias. And so uh, you can grant a new trial. Um, and there's a lot of parameters for that. It's something that's obviously, we all know Seventh Amendment, we know everything else. It's very rarely done, if ever. Um, you know, most things are left to the province of the jury. Uh, that was granted in this case. Um, very, um, and I would say to use that same legal terminology, shocking to us. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. Because um, it really was, you know, a, a clean, clean trial. We, you know, we had a comparative damage award. We had no punitive damages. We didn't try a case against uh, the big evil energy company. We tried this strictly like a, a wreck case, you know, who was negligent, who wasn't. The jury made it clear that they had no hard feelings against the power company. It was simply, they determined it, they had a duty, they were negligent, they breached the duty, there were damages. Um, and we felt like that, that you know, the, the damage award, while a great verdict, I mean, you know, um, it's not you know, the big ones you guys have on your show all the time. Um, but it, it, it's not a small one either. Um, and so, you know, they did grant the new trial. We're going through the motions and go through appellate process. And, and we hope that we'll, we'll turn that around um, and feel pretty confident that, that it was an error, this a, an abuse of discretion really by the court in these, you know, in this particular case under these facts, um, you know, I think ultimately this argument is almost based in the idea um, that I think is a, a flawed idea in 2020 to suggest for someone to be, uh, you know, mangled and shocked and right. to, to their death and to lose their, their life and their career and their ability to earn money and have a future uh, 40 years old, that it shocks the conscious that that would be uh, $21 million uh, is it's hard for me to sit with as a, as a 45 year old. I don't know that. Right. That, that does not shock the conscience. Uh, and you guys are in Georgia. We, we've seen um, multiple 280, $300 million verdicts come out of Georgia this last year. That's been and a big discussion in our legislature and we're hoping to. I, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that those necessarily shock the conscience. Right. But I might use those comparisons to say, maybe you could have the discussion there, but um I don't think you should have it here. <laughs> so the so the standard that the judge basically the judge found that this verdict shocked the consciousness uh, that that's what he found or or that it was a, a product of passion prejudice or bias. What did he give any factual 
basis for that or what what he felt led to that or just that it was just so too big? And, and obviously that's that's that'll be part of the, the arguments and arguments we've made already. Um no, there's really no basis um been given for that. So, you know, in light of that, obviously as we all know, we try cases and at the end of the day we say, did I do anything? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, did I did I cross any lines? Did I do anything that could put me in this category? And you know, not only have we reviewed it and had multiple other people review it, we just we can't find a single thing. And then there's nothing mentioned in the in the motions. I mean, by the court or any kind of the orders suggesting anything that was done that was improper or or, or would have been, you know a sign of any passion, prejudice, bias. And so, you know, with that in mind, you know, we, we obviously think it, it was a, an error and, and are very hopeful that, you know, we, we change it down the road. Yeah. Well, especially because one of the things that struck me about it was, um, so in, in Georgia, it's the, um, as you mentioned, Liam, it's, it's the full value of the life and, and the jury's actually not instructed. And sometimes you'll get a motion in limine to keep, people from talking too much about the effect that the death has had on them personally. Um, you'll get a motion that they because the jury is really supposed to think about it from the perspective of the decedent. And it sounds like in South Carolina, they're allowed to consider the value of the loss and the impact that it's had on the people who've lost a loved one. Is that right? Yeah, it's almost like it's the opposite, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I forgot that you guys had that wrinkle from the perspective of the decedent. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's the, the, the inverse of that. The, so, yes. Yeah. The family or the beneficiaries of whatever. Right. So the idea that his brother and all these people who loved him, you know, when he was taking care of his parents in Mexico, I mean, the idea that $11 million of this award is too much is, is kind of insulting. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I just think, you know, when, whenever you've got a finding that uh, they, you know, they found that uh, Mr. Larios was partially at fault. I mean, that's certainly not an inflamed jury in my mind. And then I don't know, did you have a, uh, a claim for punitive damages and did, did the jury not get there? And if, if so, that certainly seems like that would uh, make it so that they, they're not, this isn't uh, bias or passion or prejudice or anything like that. It, it, another good question, Steve. We, you know, they we did have a claim. You know, we uh, like I said, it wasn't one of these cases. One, it's it's bifurcated at this point right. in time. So the way the system is set up here is where you go through and part of the verdict form, they answer their questions related to damages, and then they're given another questions relates to punitives. Do you find that there's punitive conduct here? And so. They went through, they answered their questions, and then they're asked the question about punitives, and they say, yeah. no, we don't, we don't believe that it was reckless and willful uh, misconduct, and therefore, we don't go to the next phase. Had they answered yes at that point, then we would have had a mini you know, uh, punitive trial, go, being able to go and talk about you know, profits and that kind of thing. But right. that just wasn't the case. In this case, it's really simple, like a simple negligence trial, and clearly the jury treated it as such. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, I was just looking at the verdict form when you said that, I mean, yeah, so they uh, didn't find for punitive damages and then they, you know, put part of the fault on your client. I mean, I, I don't know how that sounds like a jury that took their job very seriously and, uh, you know, weighed out the evidence and then came up with what they believed is right. I, that, um, 
well, I hope you all are successful in that. It sounds like you've got some good basis for it. I mean, Steve and I are clearly prepared for uh, oral <laughs> right. argument. I don't right. know if you missed it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In following up on a question real quickly that yeah. you asked earlier um, to start the show, uh, what were our concerns? And, you know, I think what's super interesting to me is that we came in highly concerned about the jury. And, but we tried our case and we got the charge we wanted related to, you know, their – the, this individual's ability to recover under our tort system. And what we found uh, in what we knew is this very conservative jurisdiction that we were worried about, you know, our immigration status of our client was that the jury did exactly that. They followed the law and they were colorblind. And that, you know, just as a, as a South Carolinian for me, as an American, it was a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to see that they, in no way showed any prejudice and in fact really seemed to put that on, on the side burner. Yeah. And I, I was just, you know, uh, looking at the, uh, the breakdown of the jury. I mean, it's a jury of six men, six women, uh, seven, uh, were Caucasian, four African-American and one Hispanic. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, uh, you know, well-rounded jury. It sounds like. Yeah, it really was. Well, uh, well, guys, this has been uh, just a great interview. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've, you obviously did a fantastic do- job at trial. I'm sorry that right now you're in the middle of dealing with this um, uh, grant of a new trial, and I hope uh, you get that overturned because it sounds like this was a product of a lot of hard work and good lawyering and, uh, and a jury that really just did the right thing. Is there anything that we um, haven't talked about this case that you want to make sure that the listeners have heard? I think the last thing I, I just wanted to point, you know, we talked a lot about demonstratives, obviously, Steve, and, and you know, you mentioned the closing slides and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, as a fan of the show and, and what you guys are doing, uh, I think is great is that you hear people come on and talk about the importance of having uh, demonstratives that that appeal to all the senses of a jury, you know, the, the tactile senses, smell, all those things. And, uh, you know, just, one of sort of my favorite parts of the trial was we actually, uh, because this case was a lot about, you know, palm fronds and palm trees. We, uh, we rolled in there with some really interesting uh, real life demonstratives. (laughs) And and, uh, I think we sent you a picture about that, but we had, by the end of uh, the expert for the defense, his cross-examination, I really uh, was, was, you know, trying not to let it up show on the outside, but William having their expert hold this 10 foot palm frond up in the air while he, while he crossed him was, uh, was, was a highlight for me personally. So we, had, we really had fun with it. You know, I mean, obviously it's a serious case and it's a death case and uh, we're happy for how the, the verdict came out for the family. But uh, you know, I think it's important to try to have fun at trial and uh, did that here. I, I agree. I mean, it's a, uh, I mean, if you know, what we do is hard enough and uh, if you can't have fun from time to time, then, um, uh, you know, it just makes the job even, even harder. But um, I mean, demonstratives are one of my favorite things to talk about. I love the creativity here from lawyers and, and what they come up with and how they, how they uh, do different things to uh, demonstrate points. And then of course, uh, anytime you can get the expert holding your demonstrative while you're crossing them is uh, it's just fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> we can add that to the list. We've got a, uh, we've got that big weight that uh, 
Um, Andy, Andy Sherfia Sherfia stole yeah. from the hotel uh, gym. Right. Now we got a palm frond. Right, right. right. Well, and, and I think Randy McGinn, who covered up an expert with, uh, with uh, the post-it notes. notes. Post-it yeah. notes, yeah. yeah. Right, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we love stories like that. Well, um, well, William and Liam, this has just been a great interview and, and uh, really great work. Again, I uh, hope you're successful on your, uh, your motions and your appellate work. Um, let me just remind our listeners, we've been talking to William Applegate and Liam Duffy from the law firm of Yarborough Applegate in Charleston, South Carolina. And you can look them up at YarboroughApplegate.com. That's Y-A-R-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, Applegate, A-P-P-L-E-G-A-T-E.com. William and Liam, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Steve, Yvonne, thanks a lot. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.